Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hi, Jim. Lots going on this week in the world of economic data. We've just had non-farm payrolls out from the States, which is the monthly U.S. employment report. That jobs report is possibly the most important economic indicator out there. It's the one that certainly moves the markets the most. I think it's probably fair to say that it's the most closely watched. And again, there's been a run of these now. It's come in under expectations, more than 100,000 jobs lower than expected. Um, still a healthy 559,000 jobs. The previous month, which was really low, has only been revised up slightly. So that is also a negative surprise, at least from a jobs perspective. This is now a growing puzzle under the headline or the question, where have all the jobs gone? And I know we've discussed this, but I suspect we're going to be discussing it some more because it contrasts with other economic data that says the US economy and one or two others is actually on fire, that the economy itself has gone up like a rocket, but the number of people in employment hasn't. I'll switch to the UK, which had a rake of economic data out this week. We had a manufacturing survey that showed the fastest rise in manufacturing growth since 1997. The services sector, the much bigger sector of the UK economy, grew at its fastest rate similarly for 24 years. In an employment survey, It suggested that jobs were growing in the United United Kingdom at the fastest pace in 23 years. 
The compiler of these surveys, the people that put them all together, said that the UK is set to print growth for this quarter in an eye-popping way. That's quite something. And other sectors of the economy, like construction, are also doing very well indeed. Interesting thing there is that the jobs is unlo- jobs in the UK are, are growing, seem to be growing faster than in, in the United States. But still, we have to yet to see the UK's equivalent of the non-farm payroll. We'll get that in a few weeks' time. So economies are going up like a rocket, at least the UK and the US is, with a, a big question mark about what on earth's happening in the labour market. What is what do you think this means for Ireland? Obviously, the UK and the US are very important economies for everyone not least the Irish economy. Has there been any similar data or and what lesson do you take from what's going on in the US and the UK for Ireland, Jim? As a matter of interest, I was talking to somebody in the States working in the service sector during the week who was saying that they were having serious difficulty filling service sector jobs um, up in the wine country in Napa Valley. Um, I'm not saying this is typical of what's happening around the country, but you know, there, there are, there is difficulty in recruiting into the hospitality sector. And that is very apparent here in Ireland. And it's very apparent across Europe. And indeed, I think it is in the UK as well. So there, there is um, a labour market issue going on. In, in relation to the Irish piece, um, I've written a piece today that's going to go up on our Substack account this afternoon, uh, just summarising some of the key data releases we've seen over the last few days. And um, I guess I should start by describing what's happening on the purchasing managers index side here, because you have outlined what's happening in the United Kingdom. But um, on the manufacturing side, the index jumped to a record high of 64.1 in May. Okay, Um, output rising at a record pace. So that's an incredibly strong forward looking indicator. But within that, I think the note, the point to really note is that input costs increased at the fastest pace in 10 years and output prices rose at a, rose at a serious record pace. Okay. So you can see very strong manufacturing activity, price per pressures building. And then on the service side of the economy, which is now just basically reopening, um, in May, it jumped to the highest level since March 2016 um, as the COVID restrictions have been eased. But within that also, there are serious inflationary pressures starting to build. Um, For example, capacity pressures within the sector are building. Input cost inflation hit the highest level since July 2008. And labour costs, fuel costs, insurance costs, Brexit-related costs, energy costs, and freight costs um, are all the costs that have been highlighted in this report. So what we're seeing quite simply is that a really, really strong rebound in manufacturing and service sector activity and serious inflationary pressure starting to build. So I think that definitely feeds into our overall narrative about inflation that we have discussed at great length over recent podcasts. So it remains a very live story, and it's it's one we're going to have to continue to watch. Um, this morning, we had the Central Statistics Office publish first quarter data for the Irish economy. Okay, the purchasing managers indices I've described are pretty much up to date. Okay, they, they refer to May 
the GDP data we got today referred to the first quarter of the year. So I guess it is a little bit historical, but nevertheless, it does tell us a, no- a number of things about what's happening in the economy. The first thing I would say is that for years, I have been attending physically, remotely at the moment, the press briefings that the Central Statistics Office holds. And I found over the last few years, uh, particularly since that 2016 conference where they spoke about um, leprechaun economics, or at least that's what Paul Krugman described it as. But since then, the press briefings have become increasingly, from my perspective, frustrating because the GDP as a measure of economic activity here is just so distorted. Um, It's beyond belief at this stage. Um, Things like intellectual property assets, depreciation, um, and profit repatriations have a seriously distorting impact. And unfortunately, the CSO, in some of the data it publishes, it is unable to give us a breakdown. So, for example, the breakdown of investment in the economy, there's a whole series of asterisks because they cannot publish the data for confidentiality reasons because it might be easy to identify the companies involved in some of these transactions. So that that makes interpretation very, very difficult. But there's a, a couple of things I would say, and there's a lot more detail in the piece I've written for our Substack site. But the thing that comes across really clearly is the dual nature of the economy. So output from the multinational side of the economy was up by 17.9% in the first quarter, whereas output from the indigenous companies within the economy down by 2.1%. Consumer spending um, fell sharply by 5.1% during the quarter. Uh, Construction activity fell heavily during the quarter. And that clearly exacerbates the housing supply crisis that is just so topical here in this country at the moment. So very, very mixed picture. And I think it is totally consistent with all other data releases we're getting here. One's view on the Irish economy at the moment is so heavily determined by the sector you're either working in or engaging with. And it's very, very much a dual economy. Um, Earlier in the week, we had the publication of the Exchequer returns for the first five months of the year. And I always think that the Exchequer returns, and particularly the breakdown of tax revenues collected, is a really good indicator, um, nearly a real-time indicator of what's happening in the economy. And um, what the, the Exchequer returns show is that the tax take is growing very strongly up by over 9% in the first quarter compared to a year earlier. And within that, income tax is very, very strong, um, up by 11.2%. And that reflects the fact that a lot of workers in the economy in sectors that are doing well are still earning, they're still continuing to pay income tax. There's the dual nature of the economy as well. And the, the other point that's important to note is that the VAT take was up by 22% compared to a year earlier. And that reflects the fact that we are seeing a strong rebound in business and VAT-related expenditure. And for example, car sales in the first five months of the year up by 17%. So in a nutshell, Chris, 
uh, to summarize all of those data releases, clear evidence that we're seeing a very strong rebound in the Irish economy and also clear evidence of the dual nature of the recovery and the growth performance over the last number of months. And of course, if you extrapolate forward, um, just as on the way down, some sectors did very well, others really had a horrendous time. I think the recovery is pretty much going to be like that as well. Those sectors that did well will recover very strongly. Those sectors that are and were subject to the most stringent COVID-related conditions, they are restrictions. They are the ones that will really struggle to re-emerge over the coming months. But at least with the economy reopening, um, it, it is going in the right direction. The inflation comments that you make there, I think, are particularly interesting because looping back to the US data release that has come out in the last few minutes, commentators that certainly I would respect are saying it's another miss on US monthly job creation. Mohamed El Aryan, who is a very prominent market commentator, says that this confirms that supply difficulties are continuing to be an issue for the good functioning of the labor market because labor force participation actually slipped, which is one of those key indicators underneath the surface of the headline numbers that we look at. And he thinks, and it's hard to disagree, that this will push wages higher and pin the Fed down even more into the corner that it's painting for itself. I mean, that's a forecast and we'll see if it's right or not. But the fall in the labour participation rate is actually a, a disappointment. And that is certainly consistent with the notion that people are holding back. They're not entering the, the workforce en masse, despite the economy itself taking off like a rocket. And all of those anecdotes that we've got on both sides of the Atlantic about people, about businesses having difficulty hiring workers um, are real. And you can see it now in the headline numbers, the anecdotes that I've been telling on this podcast about going out and about in the UK are starting to show up in some headline numbers. The, the number of people that I've spoken with um, over the last while that, are, that have gone to restaurants and pubs in particular say pretty much the same thing, which is that it's clear that these hospitality businesses are having trouble hiring workers. They haven't got enough staff service is actually terrible because there aren't enough people. And the people that are working there are often very inexperienced. So that speaks anecdotally to what's going on, I think, in these headline numbers. I think that we need to say a few more things about the UK. Jim, you wanted to say something there. Yeah, I just want to say something, Chris, about um, this is a bank holiday weekend here in Ireland. And um, on Monday morning, the hospitality hospitality sector here, or at least restaurants, are opening for out-of-doors dining. And um, we have breakfast booked um, in a local restaurant for Monday morning. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what's happening there on the price front. But more, more seriously, um, I've seen a lot of sort of social media comment in recent times responding to the difficulty that hospitality businesses are encountering and trying to hire staff at the moment i've seen a lot of social media commentary suggesting well why don't they just pay them more and that that is an interesting question because i, I know and I've, I've i've done a lot of work in the whole hospitality area in the restaurant sector and for the vast majority of operators you know, margins are really tight it's a tough business um, you work very long hours, um, you know, you take a lot of risks. Obviously, for the last 15 months, the sector has had a horrendous time. So 
if the, the reality is, of course, that if you are going to pay higher wages, which we'd all like to see, but that is going to be passed on to the consumer in higher prices. And that then gives rise to the question, how will consumers react to restaurant prices rising? So, you know, you will see, um, you know, you'll see an outcry about ripoff, etc., etc. So you can't have it both ways. If you pay higher wages to workers in those sectors, which we'd all like to see, inevitably, it will result in higher prices being paid by the consumer. And over the years, I've heard so many sensible people say that they were in Portugal or wherever and how much cheaper things are. You know, why is Ireland so expensive? Um, And I would always respond, well, if we're prepared to pay the types of wages they pay in countries like Portugal to our workers, yeah, we could have those sorts of prices as well. So that there's, there's, there's a lot of, um, the dots aren't being joined here by a lot of people, but I think it's a pretty simple trade-off, to be honest. I totally agree, but with one caveat. I have more than a suspicion that some of the places I've been in in the UK, particularly London, as well as responding to those wage pressures that you talk about, and you're quite right, people in this industry do deserve to be paid more. I wonder whether owners of these businesses are trying to recoup some of their losses that they made during the pandemic by whacking their profit margins above their wages by more than perhaps is wise and putting people off. Because I'm quite sure in some of the places that I've eaten in recently that the price rises are not all going to the workers, that that's not the only factor going on. I do think that, that quite understandably, people who own restaurants and pubs who've lost a lot of money over the last 15 months are trying to recoup some of it. It's understandable, but as you say, it could backfire. But I I, I guess there's also a mindset here um, that, you know, people are so delighted to get back into restaurants again uh, that price really isn't an issue at this point in time. But very quickly, the novelty of getting back to the restaurant will wear off and then we will see how people react to higher prices. So uh, it's enough to watch, I think. The number of people that have said to me, I'm not going back there, is interesting in that regard. The greatest threat to this economic story, one of economies taking off like a rocket, is actually in the UK, I think, at the moment. And it's worth spending just a couple of minutes, not any more than that. This will count as our usual COVID corner. I was stung by a remark that one of our commenters kindly made the other day that we should stick to economics and stay away from science and not talk so much about COVID. What I want to do today is demonstrate to our commenter that we do know a little bit about this because an awful lot of the science behind COVID is about mathematics. One of the things that you and I are, Jim, is reasonably competent mathematicians, even at our old age. The situation with the India variant in, in the UK is actually very serious. And I think possibly, potentially, it clearly is a risk factor for that economic takeoff. And I've been looking at the models that epidemiologists use to forecast what is likely to happen next to cases, hospitalizations and deaths. And we're on a knife edge. It could be very, very serious. It could threaten that recovery that we're talking about. There is hope that it won't. And some of the models suggest that it might not. All of the models depend on a a whole range of assumptions just to demonstrate that we, we do know a little bit about what we're talking about. The basic epidemiological model for these sorts of things actually dates back all the way to the 1920s. It's called a SIR model, S-I-R. And obviously it's been adapted as, as techniques and data have gotten better. 
but there are a couple of key parameters that that really drive which side of that knife edge we're going to fall off. And there are things like there's something called there's risks of being actually uh, admitted into hospital, A&E attendance. That's something called a hazard ratio. There's something called a secondary attack ratio. And all of these parameters, depending on what number you put on these key parameters in the model, determine what will happen next. And it's nonlinear mathematics. So things either go off to the moon or they only go up gradually. Exponential growth can be really severe or just severe. But a lot depends on these particular parameters that we use in our models. And I've seen models that say, well, the India variant clearly has a, a higher SAR. It clearly has a higher hazard ratio. And depending on how high, it's going to determine just how serious it gets. So without being one of those forecasters, being one of those people that have built and used one of these models, what I can take from all of this work is that it's going to get worse before it gets better here in the UK. That the case numbers, which already have risen a lot, we have exponential growth in coronavirus cases again in the UK over the last few weeks. That's confirmed in the numbers across the board. I do conclude that that's going to get worse, probably a lot worse before it gets better. Hospitalizations are going to go up. The extent to which they go up to determine whether or not we can finalize the reopening plan on June the 21st, I think is, is, is now doubtful. But obviously, we don't know. That determination will be made on June the 14th. It could get serious enough that we go backwards rather than forwards, that we don't just put these things on hold. That's nobody's central case at the moment, but clearly we're very worried about this. But we're in for a very sticky few weeks in the UK. And the moral of this particular story for you in Ireland, Jim, and indeed other countries, is that you haven't had as many vaccinations. You haven't got as many fully vaccinated people as we have here. And that's the only line of defence we got now. And even with the UK's very high vaccination rate, the numbers of unvaccinated people that are getting this India variant are behind all of this stuff that I'm talking about. Because the people that are ending up in hospital typically, not always, but typically have not been vaccinated, certainly not been vaccinated twice. So the UK is in for a very difficult June. If given that what seems to happen in one country eventually ends up happening everywhere else, I think that you need to watch this very closely as well. So this is a very clear risk factor. That's the only reason why I'm raising it. And I'm really saying that it is very serious. In, in response to the comment that came in um, advising us to stick to economics and to stay away from science, uh, I mean, what we were describing in that discussion was the reason why uh, Joe Biden has announced um, an investigation into the source of the coronavirus in China. And we were sort of describing what was happening there. I don't think we, when we were interpreting the data, etc., we weren't quite being scientists. Um, one mistake that I did make that that commenter pointed out was I described Sam McConkie as a member of NEFID. Um, that's my mistake. Apparently, he's not a member of NEFID. Okay, he's just a public health official uh, that makes a lot of noise um, during the COVID thing. But Chris, you described something that should be deeply concerning for us here in Ireland, and that is the Indian variant and what it's starting to do in the United Kingdom and the fact that the vaccination levels are significantly lower here. So that is really a concern. But this day last week, we had a spirited disagreement over the common travel area. And, you know, I was arguing that based on the advice that Neffert was given the Irish government, that we were sort of correct in having the restrictions in place that we have in place. 
Um, and based on what you're saying today, a week later, I mean, have you changed your mind on that? Because, you know, the notion that we recreate the common travel area in an environment where infection rates are starting to get alarmingly high again in the United Kingdom, surely it'd be nuts, you know, regardless of your reservations about the longer term impact that our attitude to the CTA has on the UK's future attitude to the CTA, um, it would make no sense, surely, to roll back on that common travel area arrangement at the moment. I understand why you say that, but it's, but my understanding is that the India variant is already in Ireland. Well, well, it is, but I mean, at relatively low levels as far as we can determine. But so what are you suggesting we should reinstall or reinstate the common travel area immediately and allow us to be flooded with it if that's the case? I'd say two things to that. One is that my point about the common travel area was that you've shut you shut it at a time when the uh, pre-India variant thing, um, case rates in Ireland were much higher than they were in the UK. Death Hospitalisation and death rates were higher than they were in the UK. And for months you had a one-sided closure of the common travel area when the epidemiological situation was much worse in Ireland than the UK. So that it made no logical sense in its own terms. That's really motivated the comments of last week. My worries that I've just described about the India variant, having looked at the modelling, having looked at the data and seen how difficult it's going to get for the UK over the next couple of weeks, how, how difficult it's probably going to get for the UK over the next few weeks, leads me to, I think, just about agree with you that on balance it probably makes no sense today now to reopen but i'm not i don't know how much practical difference keeping it closed will make given the fact that it's already in ireland the experiment if you like that you'd like to run to be able to answer your question would be to say okay what would happen if we kept it closed and what would happen if we opened it i suspect given the nature of this particular variant whether it, it grows from what you've already got or grows from people coming in across the, the, through the airports isn't going to make an awful lot of difference, actually. But that's an assertion rather than one that I can actually scientifically back up. So I, I won't make that assertion. But that I have a suspicion that, that whether or not the common travel area is, remains open or closed won't make an awful lot of difference to what happens. Because it seems to me that once these particularly nasty variants arrive in your country, there's not a lot that can be done border-wise. The only way that you can effectively suppress it is if you do both things, which is that you suppress what's already there and suppress the stuff that's coming in. If you can do both, then I think it makes sense. But if all you do is stop it coming in and don't do very much to suppress what's already there, and that's the effective test, trace and isolate thing that we keep going on about, then it, it, in practical terms, it doesn't make an awful lot of difference. But I understand emotionally, it can seem illogical to shut, to, to open the border at this time. So let's leave COVID corner there, Jim, before we disagree even more about it. One final thing that I wanted to talk about today, which is very topical globally, but particularly in Ireland, is property taxes. There has been a revision of, or a proposed revision of what you're going to have to pay for your property. And we seem to have got, I think, the makings perhaps of another water charges, political hot potato, maybe, maybe not. But property taxes are one of those things that economists think are great ideas, but non-economists think are terrible. We've had Mary Lou MacDonald, the head of Sinn Féin, describing them as unfair taxes and promising to abolish them should Sinn Féin ever, ever be elected. 
We had John Fitzgerald in today's Irish Times, very respected, renowned, eminent economist, who explicitly said these are very fair taxes. This all happened in the context of um, earlier this week, the government announced an economic recovery plan for Ireland, where they have extended um, a lot of the COVID reliefs out to the end of September and ultimately out to the end of the year. So the government stands ready to pump a lot more money in to support the small business sector of the economy, particularly over the coming months. But uh, as part of that whole discussion, um, they mentioned the notion of, um, well, sorry, they, they have made specific proposals about reforming the property tax system um, to take account of you know developments since uh, it was introduced, I think, back in 2013. Um, I, if you look back at a little bit of Irish economic history, uh, one of the big problems that caused a huge vulnerability for Ireland back in 2007, 2008, was that the tax base had narrowed in a very dangerous way. In other words, our exchequer had become incredibly reliant on um, tax revenues from property, construction and related activities. And at the same time, they were taking over a decade, they had been taking hundreds of thousands of workers out of the tax net altogether. They had been reducing tax rates they had been increasing allowances, etc. So the government up to 2007, 2008, or successive governments, I should say, had been narrowing the tax base in a dangerous way. And that danger then was highlighted when the property and construction sector collapsed in 2007, 2008. Suddenly, the tax base was absolutely decimated. And coming out of that period... Uh, the mantra from everybody, and including myself, was that it was now time to turn around, to broaden the tax base, to get as many, well, my view was that we should have as many people as possible paying taxes at as low a rate as possible. Okay, so you broaden the tax base rather than increase taxes as such. And part of that was the introduction of a property tax. And I think in terms of Number one, broadening the tax base. Number two, giving you a source of tax revenue that's permanent rather than transitory, like transaction-based taxes like we were getting from the construction sector. So property tax ticks a lot of boxes in terms of broadening, in terms of creating certainty and permanence in the system. Uh, and of course, it is a wealth tax. And those on the left you know, consistently argue for wealth taxes. And I just do not fundamentally understand how self-proclaimed socialists like Mary Lou um, and others in the political system here can have the audacity to actually oppose property taxes. And this just goes back to something we've discussed before. This is just stupid political populism. You know, they will oppose anything for the sake of opposing anything. Let's just go back to first principles and ask that question why economists like this, but people don't. And I think you've explained why people, uh, non-economists, don't. Economists start from the, a premise that nobody else understands, which is that when you own a property, you're getting it, what's called an imputed income from it because you don't have to pay rent. And that's one of the sort of principles, theoretical principles of taxation on which property taxes are based. And it is an important one because it's right. 
Property taxes do need to be well designed. And there are questions about, about design and whether or not you should tax the whole property or whether you should tax just the equity that people have in the property. And I, you can get well-designed property taxation schemes and not so well-designed. So it's important to ask those questions. Economists that of the right-wing persuasion, like our dear old friend, the late Milton Friedman, who hated all taxes, him, he didn't like any taxes at all. And he called land value taxes, which are not quite property taxes, but they're nested within each other, as the least bad tax of all. And I think that's important. And I think that was right. And why do people not like them? Well, you've touched on one or two reasons. And again, Friedman said people don't like this tax because it's the only tax left that people actually have to pay out of their own bank accounts. Because when you think about income tax and VAT, they're semi-invisible. You see them as line items on a payslip, but you don't actually write a check or do the bank transaction to pay them. So people feel them much more than they feel the other taxes. And I think in terms of the design, you can do things like make allowances for people that are on very low incomes and are accidentally, if you like, living in, in big houses that they can't afford. All those sorts of things are very important. But the most important point, I think, is the, is the one that you've already raised, which is that those of a left-wing persuasion or anybody of any political persuasion that think that wealth taxes should be a very important part of the tax toolkit, if you like, uh, if you're going to have a wealth tax in Ireland, you've got to tax property because there is no other form of wealth in Ireland to speak of. You can only tax things where there is, tax where the money is, is one of the principles of taxation. It's a stable form of taxation for obvious reasons. And so if you are going to be a proponent of wealth taxes, you've got to tax property because it's by far and away the biggest source of wealth in Ireland. If you rule out taxing property and then you still say that you're in favour of a wealth tax, then you are in, indulging in populist political posturing. Um, and there's no other way to put it. Yeah, I, I guess my, my reservations about property taxes would be that the one that was introduced in this country, you know, I, I don't think was very well designed because you mentioned the equity you own in a house. I mean, if you could have two neighbours living next door to each other with houses valued at 500,000 each, uh, one has a mortgage equivalent to 70% of the value and the other the other people don't have any mortgage and yet they both end up paying the same amount of tax. So I, I think uh, the way it is structured is really, really important. And, and it's also the case, and I think this is would be particularly true for older people, you know, who have lived in properties for decades and the that the property has appreciated dramatically in value over the years. So they're sitting on a very valuable asset, but they may be living on a pension. So the question of people that are asset rich and cash poor, uh, that does create a complication around a property tax. But, but having said that, I mean, I am in favor of property tax because it does broaden the tax base. It does create certainty. And um, I, I, I would like to see, though, some of those nuances being addressed to, you know, make it more equitable for people to take to take cognizance of the fact that some people, you know, are asset rich and cash poor. Uh, so I, I, I think that has to be considered. And, and of course, it's, it's also the case. I mean, you talk about imputed rent um, and, and that is true. But on the other hand, you know, people turn around and they. Um, 
pay down a deposit on a house on after-tax income. They then take out a mortgage, which they pay back over a number of years. Um, people who are renting actually don't have to engage in this massive capital outlay that can be um, a burden around your neck for 30, 40 years. So there's, there's, there's a lot of ways of looking at it, but I, I suppose I go back to the point that I am in favor of it just as I was in favor of water charges when they were introduced. And I think one of the biggest policy failures we've had here in recent years has been the abolition of water charges. And we will pay the price for that in terms of our water infrastructure into the future. There is no doubt about that. And and I guess my other reservation, which probably reflects stuff that people like Milton Freeman and the US economist Thomas Sowell would say, uh, one of the problems with taxation and raising taxation is that the more money you hand over to government, the, the greater the opportunity you're given to government to waste that money. Um, I, If I was convinced that my taxes were actually going to be used wisely by government, that, you know, that the money was spent correctly, that you had efficient public services, et cetera, et cetera, I would have no problem paying higher taxes but in this country, inevitably, you end up paying higher taxes and the government just wastes more of it. It's not a straightforward argument. But you're going to have to pay for local services somehow. And the way in which taxation systems everywhere are structured is that local services like library schools, um, local road repairs, things like that are all paid for by the council rather than central government. And so the local council has to be funded somehow. So if you don't fund it through property taxes, it's going to come from central taxation, which is the which I think is the Sinn Féin position. So you talked about taxations on income in Ireland already being quite high. Um, if you don't do this, then your taxes on income are going to go up, just as your taxes on income are already higher than they would otherwise be, because that's where all the water uh, funding comes from. Because as you say, it has to come from somewhere. The need for this expenditure is real. Um, your point about it being efficiently managed is, is well well made. But if we were paying more local taxes to local politicians, then um, we might take more interest in our local politics and get more, get more involved and demand better local government. But if all that happens is that from central taxation, it gets doled out to county councils who then inefficiently organise it because there's just too much bureaucracy already, then I think that you have a problem. We've run out of time, Jim. Uh, as always, uh, not enough time, too much to talk about. But thanks very much for a very lively discussion. And I'll see you next time. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope to have you on board again very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.